May what is spoken here this morning and what is heard be spoken and heard in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> uh, let me begin by wishing everyone a most blessed Christmas, reminding everyone we're just in the middle of a very exciting season. I hope you'll continue to uh, enjoy it. It's wonderful to be back in our parish where everyone is welcome and where we experience God's love as lavish. In the beginning was the Word. This is the Christmas story, the third time the Bible tells it. <clears throat> It's the same story that we heard on Christmas Eve, the story of the manger and the shepherds and the angels. And it is the same story Matthew tells in his gospel with Joseph's dreams and the wise men and the flight into Egypt. <clears throat> but the point of view is different. And John's gospel <coughs> often sounds strange to ears more accustomed to crowded inns and angel choirs. And that's because different men are telling the same story. Luke, who wrote the familiar story we heard on Christmas Eve, was an historian, and he was concerned with getting the dates and rulers right and with locating everything in time and space. And Matthew was very concerned making it clear that Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. <clears throat> so shepherds didn't interest him much as the royal wise men from the East. John, the author of today's gospel, was a theologian and a mystic. And when he writes about the meaning of Jesus' birth, <clears throat> He writes from the holy imagination of his prayers, but he is telling the same Christmas story. <coughs> John begins his story earlier. He reminds us that Christmas really begins where Genesis begins, in the beginning, with God in creation. And using language evocative of Genesis, John begins by talking about the word of God, God in action, God creating, God revealing himself in all that is new. And then John tells the Christmas story in nine words. And the word became flesh dwelt among us. He who was with God in creation, the one who is God revealing himself to us, this one is a person, a complete human being as you and I are. Not God in a people suit, not a really 
good person God has rewarded and made special, not a super angel God created early and then delivered to Bethlehem. <clears throat> and in addition to telling the same story, Matthew, Luke, and John <clears throat> also share one special way of telling it. There's one image, one symbol, and only one that they all use to talk about the birth in Bethlehem. They all talk about light. The light of the star, the light that shone around the shepherds, the true light that enlightens every person. These all echo Isaiah's vision of vindication, shining out like the dawn of salvation, like a burning torch. The light shines in darkness, John proclaims, and somehow we understand this. And we understand that this truth cannot be better expressed in any other words, <coughs> any other image. <coughs> the text today read, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. I remember a slightly different translation with a somewhat different meaning. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The darkness could not understand this new light. And what, may we ask, is darkness? Is it simply the absence of light? Where there is no light, there is empty space called darkness. I think not. Rather, I think darkness is the terror that frightens. It is what shames the soul and drags us down. Darkness is what hides the truth from us and causes us to lose our way. <coughs> Consider the following. <coughs> we are confused. <coughs> cannot decide what direction to take in our work or with our family. Is, it, is not this like walking in darkness? We think we will lose forever a close and trusted relationship. Is this not like being alone in some dark veil? We despair when we feel when we are dismissed from a job. <clears throat> is, that, is this not like being plunged into a dark pit? <clears throat> we are tempted to act against what we know is right. Is this not wearing like not is this not like wearing blinders that hide what we know to be true? We experience physical or emotional pain? Does this not feel like being enveloped in a dark cloud? 
It is the presence of temptation and evil that threaten to deprive us of our dignity and to erode our self-worth. No wonder we ask God each day to lead us not into temptation and to deliver us from evil. Life-giving light, the true light that lightens every person, on the other hand, is like water which chooses the lowest place and steals along hidden by the rushes. We know it is there by the greenness that it leaves along the banks. Life-giving light is persistent and appealing like a newborn child. It is the message unto us, a child is born. It is an announcement that the blaze of heaven penetrates the darkness of our winter and the torment of our world, and it is no wonder that the darkness comprehended it not, the light. The light-giving light is reaching out to challenge the best in us and to challenge us each to create a world in which families can dwell in safety, in which children can grow up strong in character, and in which all of us can embrace the hope for a future which promises both fulfillment and care in the beautiful world God has entrusted to us. The subtext of the Christmas story is that the great God who creates all new life has chosen to reveal himself in simple, unpretentious ways. The Christmas stories also reveal three clues for recognizing God's presence wherever it is to be found. And these three clues are joy, innocence, and generosity. The joy of new life in Jesus, the innocence of the hearts of Mary and Joseph, and the generosity of all who come to adore the Christ child. We can see these three same clues in this story from Richard Seltzer's book, Mortal Lessons. Dr. Seltzer is a surgeon. <clears throat> he has just performed a delicate operation on a young woman's face to remove a tumor, and he is beside her bedside after the operation. He writes about his experience as follows. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, 
her face twisted, a tiny twig of facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. In order to remove the tumor in her teeth, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at each other so generously, greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. And all at once, I know who <coughs> is. I understand, and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in the presence of a god. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I am so close. I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. The Christmas story is a promise that life-giving light will continue in our midst to cast out fear, conquer despair, and to overcome darkness. <clears throat> the story holds up the reality that we can have hope in our darkest nights and in our most tormented days. The story reminds us that even in a world filled with horrors, and regardless of the deformities caused by our sin, God will twist his own lips to accommodate ours, to show us that our kiss still works. In the name